Today on Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, we'll talk with a woman who offers an approach to achieving inner peace. Her name is Byron Katie, author of Loving What Is and A Thousand Names for Joy. I realized that when I believed my thoughts, I suffered. But when I didn't believe my thoughts, I didn't suffer. And I've come to see that this is true for every human being. Byron Katie insists anyone can achieve more inner peace by utilizing a method of personal inquiry she's crafted that she calls the work. I'm not good enough. Okay, so is that true? Not in all cases. So you're not good enough. Can you absolutely know that it's true, that you're not good enough in any case? Oh, I guess I don't know. Because good enough is, it's just relative, isn't it? Yes. Okay. It is. Byron Katie and the Search for Inner Peace, today on Peace Talks. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. As we survey ideas about reducing conflict in our lives on this program, we occasionally like to return to maybe the most challenging conflict terrain of all, our inner selves. How can we calm the turmoil within ourselves about who we are, how we are, and how we relate to the rest of the world? Today we'll talk with a woman who offers one approach. Her name is Byron Katie, who in the mid-1980s says she was in deep personal chaos trying to manage her life as a businesswoman and mother living in Southern California. More than miserable, she says she was deeply depressed, fearful, suicidal, and living in a halfway house, unable to manage on her own. On this day in the winter of 2007, the woman everyone calls Katie walks up the aisle through an applauding audience in a packed church auditorium in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Dressed in a simple black pantsuit that offsets her silver hair, she reaches the stage, turns, and beams back at the audience members, most of whom have read or heard of one of her best-selling books, Loving What Is, I Need Your Love, Is That True?, or A Thousand Names for Joy, co-written with her husband, Stephen Mitchell, who was with her on stage at this book tour stop. As the book titles suggest, Byron Katie found a way of dealing with her stress that turned her life around. She says on a specific 1986 morning in that halfway house, she experienced what she called a falling away of self that led to an inner freedom. And she insists anyone can achieve it, utilizing a method of personal inquiry she's crafted that she calls the work. Suzanne Kreider talked with Byron Katie about the work in a Santa Fe hotel before her public event. Welcome, Katie. Thank you, Suzanne. It is such a joy to be here with you. Katie, we look outside ourselves Mm -hmm. and we see these nations at war. But you say that the biggest war is the one inside ourselves. It is. It is. It's It's the mind's war with itself. It's us arguing with us, with ourselves, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I should, I should, I need, no, I don't, I want, no, that's wrong. Just, you know, we live that way. Why did I do it? Why don't I do it? I know what that look meant yesterday, you know, it's, and we carry that, but only to our deathbed. And so what I bring to the world is four simple questions and a turnaround that works for me and for Anyone with an open mind, it works. And the mind, it allows the mind to find resolution. And you went through a personal awakening in 1986. You woke up one morning, and there was joy. How did that happen? Well, I had had more than a decade of depression, agoraphobia, paranoia, suicidal, um, you know, contemplating suicide all the time. As I lay on the floor... One morning, actually, a cockroach crawled over my foot, and I was on the floor because I didn't believe I deserved to sleep in a bed. So this is where I slept each night. And this particular morning, as that cockroach crawled over my foot, I opened my eyes, and in place of all that darkness was a joy that I don't even attempt to describe. And it's what I invite everyone to. So rather than tell about the joy... I give people a way to to tap into the source that flooded me, um, and we all have that source inside of us, I found, that no one holds more wisdom than another. 
Tell us about the four questions. Well, the four questions is a way, actually, I call it the work. The work is a way to identify and question the thoughts that cause all the suffering in the world. Everyone's suffering, and anyone can do it if they're open to it. So let's say, for example, I believed he doesn't care about me. The first question is, is it true? So I'm beginning to question the thought he doesn't care about me. The second question, can I absolutely know that it's true? He doesn't care about me. And then notice how the mind begins to flood me with proof and images, you know, to uh, convince me that it's true. And just to notice and wait and allow another answer to surface. And then that third question, how do you react when you believe that thought? And the fourth question, who would you be without that thought? And then I invite people to turn it around to the opposite. He doesn't care about me. The opposite would be, I don't care about me. And that's a mind blower. You know, it's like, how can, you know, how can I expect people to care about me if I don't even care about me? And then I find the ways that I don't care about me, and it wakes me up to them. And I'm shocked. And then another opposite or turn around would be, I don't care about him. And I begin to identify where that's true. And then immediately I'm awake to it and my behavior changes and it's nothing I have to do. So my behavior with that person and everyone, it radically shifts. People who do this work, I hear them say, smoking, quit me. Biting my fingernails, quit me. Compulsive overeating, quit me. Because we're working with original cause and mind is original cause. Mind is cause. Byron Katie's husband and co-author Stephen Mitchell reading an excerpt from the book A Thousand Names for Joy at the Santa Fe Public Event in February 2007. Sadness is always a sign that you're believing a stressful thought that isn't true for you. It's a constriction, and it feels bad. Conventional wisdom says differently, but the truth is that sadness isn't rational, it isn't a natural response, and it can't ever help you. It just indicates the loss of reality, the loss of the awareness of love. Sadness is the war with what is. It's a tantrum. When the mind is clear, there isn't any sadness. There can't be. If you move into situations of loss in a spirit of surrender to what is, all you experience is a profound sweetness and an excitement about what can come out of the apparent loss. And once you question the mind, once the stressful story is seen for what it is, there's nothing you can do to make it hurt. You see that the worst loss you've experienced is the greatest gift you can have. When the story arises again, she shouldn't have died or he shouldn't have left, it's experienced with a little humor, a little joy. Life is joy, and if you understand the illusion arising, you understand that it's you arising as joy. Let's pick a core belief that we could do the work on a little bit. What's a core belief that you hear over and over again that our listeners could relate to and they could do the work with? I'm not good enough. I'm not good enough because we hear it over and over and over. And also there's, I'm too fat, I don't have enough money, no one cares about me, I'll never find a partner. And it's kind of based in, and I'm not good enough, so, so let's, let's go with that one. Let's do that one. I'm not good enough. Okay, so is that true? Not in all cases. So you're not good enough. Can you absolutely know that it's true, that you're not good enough in any case? Oh, I guess I don't know. Because good enough is, it's just relative, isn't it? Yes. Okay. It is. And when people sit in that, I could sit in that for three hours and and probably have originally. So the third question, how do you react when you believe the thought you're not good enough? I feel embarrassed. I feel embarrassed and ashamed and like I just have to do more to prove something to somebody. Yes, and the response I get from that one from people all over the world, it's, it's quite amazing. This is where addictions kick in. It's where, it's, you know, that's an effect of mind. 
It's where they notice that when they meet someone that really cares about them and they have the thought, I'm not good enough, that person can say, you're wonderful. And the person believing I'm not good enough doesn't believe them in the face of of reality and another person's opinion. So it's very far-reaching. So we really cut ourselves off from life. So you're not good enough. The fourth question, who would you be without that thought? I take a lot more risks and probably more I'd probably be a more successful engaged human being because there wouldn't be any barriers. Yeah. It's very powerful. I love to invite people to look at their lives just the way they've lived it, you know, no no trick question here. And look at their lives with the thought and then look at their the same life without the thought and it seems to me that you were you were looking inside of you that way. It's very powerful. We see with the thought, stress, and without the thought, unlimited, really. So I'm not good enough. Can you find an opposite? I am good enough. Okay. Now, examples of where you're good enough, because it's not enough for mind just to say, I'm not, I, I am good enough. Mind has to know. It has to be awake to reality. So you know, it shocks people when they find, you know, areas where they are good enough, when their, their self-esteem is so low, they've never considered it. Because that thought is so powerful, they can't consider it. Is that where there's a lot of reticence to answer a question? Mm-hmm. Do you see that? That's where a block is? Um, you know, it is for a lot of people because it's where, it's where the mind absolutely meets itself straight up. It says, come out of denial. You have to if you're going to answer this question. Where is it that you are good enough? I'm good enough at my work, my friendships, with my family. Yeah, I do volunteer work. Well, and some of us have to start with I brushed my teeth this morning. You know, for some people, that's huge. I got out of bed. I made the phone call. I answered the email. For some people, they're so depressed and so so stuck in their belief system that their body actually um, has trouble. Just, just, It's like we're living in a tomb, some of us, and we actually can resurrect. It's the truth that sets us free. And how does inner peace relate to outer peace? You've talked about one-on-one with people, but how does that relate to nations and groups and neighborhoods? Well, if I'm at home, I'm watching the news, and I see all of these people dying, being bombed. You know, it's like, how can this terrible thing be, happen- be happening? They're, they're bombing. They're, they're dying. They're suffering. And if I turn that around, you know, where am I dying, especially in the moment as I watch television in the state of grace where, where no bombs are going off? I live in a, in, in, in a state where no one's being killed and maimed and my children are safe, you know, now. And where am I bombing me? Where are my thoughts bombing me, obliterating the awareness of, of how beautiful to look out the window and... You know, from this place right here, right now, and the flowers sitting beside me, maybe in a vase, and and on and on. There's so many blessings here, and now with this clear mind and out of this this place of peace, where I'm not bombing myself, where I am not suffering, how can I help? How can I help? Well, I've just done the most constructive thing. I have found my own peace. I have brought it back to me. So when when someone knocks on the door or the phone rings or someone walks into the room with me, I'm pleasant. In fact, I respond to them out of a state of gratitude and helpfulness. You know, making the world a better place, that's where we're the most balanced. It's where we like us the most and it's where we are the most liked. Byron Katie's husband and co-author Stephen Mitchell reading another excerpt from the book A Thousand Names for Joy at the Santa Fe Public Event in February 2007. 
I read an interview with a well-known Buddhist teacher in which he described how appalled and devastated he felt while watching the planes hit the World Trade Center on September 11, 2001. While this reaction is very popular, it is not the reaction of an open mind and heart. It has nothing to do with compassion. It comes from believing unquestioned thoughts. He believed, for example, this shouldn't be happening, or this is a terrible thing. It was thoughts like these that were making him suffer, not the event itself. He was devastating himself with his unquestioned thoughts. His suffering had nothing to do with the terrorists or the people who died. Can you take this in? Here was a man dedicated to the Buddha's way, the end of suffering, who in that moment was terrorizing his own mind, causing his own grief. I felt compassion for people who projected fearful meanings onto that picture of a plane hitting a building, who killed themselves with their unquestioned thoughts and took away their own state of grace. I'm Suzanne Kreider. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. Our guests today are Byron Katie, author, and her husband, Stephen Mitchell. They've written A Thousand Names for Joy. We're exploring her methodology called The Work for Creating Inner Peace. Katie, in your book, you say, War is not intelligent. It doesn't work. If you're really interested in your own peace of mind, you'll become more and more aware of that sense of wanting to defend yourself against criticism. Yes, I um, I just have discovered that defense is the first act of war and that people don't understand this. And so let's say someone criticized me and said, Katie, you're wrong, and I I can defend and say, how dare you say that? I have uh, studied this. I have all the proof. And how dare you? And, and your mind is limited. Or I could just simply give them the look, you know. And and <laughs> the look that says, you know, you know, you're wrong. I'm right. Mm. And then there's an, another way. And this is the way I suggest. Someone says, Katie, you're wrong. And I open to that. Could they be right? Is it possible? that I'm wrong about this? And and then I can say, you know, if, if I don't get right away where I'm wrong, I can ask that person. They are not my enemy. They're my friend. Here's the part I don't get, though. If we're supposed to question our own beliefs, why should we listen to somebody else's criticism of reality? I don't get that. Simply because, like, if, if you say, Katie, you're wrong... And, and I have the thought, I'm open enough, my mind is open enough to, to, uh, to think, you know, could she be right? Is this possible? I can say, Suzanne, tell me, tell me more. So you tell me, and you can give information to me that I was totally unaware of because I was coming out of the I know mind. I know, I'm right, you're wrong. So you've enlightened me, you've given me more information, and it could be that I still am right, to my mind, and information can't hurt. You know, why would I stop the whole world from uh, giving me information that I can that I can probably use? And most of the time, you know, I can. I heard you speak once, and you asked the audience to criticize you. Uh-huh. A woman said, "I don't like your haircut." Mm-hmm. The next woman said, "I don't like that you got a facelift." Uh-huh. I just don't see how you can use that information and be open to her viewpoint. Well, you know, it's very exciting. Maybe I want another facelift. <laughs> and I think, oh, she didn't like it, and and people don't really like it. You know, I want to know what I like. You know, I'm free. I want to be free. And if she says, you know, uh, that she didn't like it, I can say, you know, why not? Tell me. Because if it's valid, you know, um, I may not do it again if I consider it. But what information, where's information that I can't use? I mean, I can always use it. Why are people so defensive about feedback? 
Well, you know, for me, if I'm defensive about feedback, it's or let's let's say criticism, then uh, it's it can only be because they have said something to me that I have am hiding within myself. They have said a truth that I haven't looked at closely enough yet. I am not enlightened to it. So, I mean, what could anyone say to me in this whole world that, that couldn't open me? But instead, we, we shut down to information. This is what governments do. This is what heads of countries do. They're closed down. It's like, I'm right. Ah. You're wrong. I'm right. Here comes the bomb. That's the peacemaking, to hear the other side. Oh, my goodness, why wouldn't we? Like one country says, you know, you're wrong. And the other country says, I'm right. Well, I thought I was. Okay, tell me where I'm wrong. Now, this is intelligent. And so they discuss it. You know, I can see where I'm wrong. I can see where you could see that I'm wrong. And, uh, and I can see from your way of thinking this is correct. Now, what can we do from here? What can we do? What can, how, can we use, how can we use our resources to not be countries but to be people and to live out of what we all live out of so well, and that is how can I serve you without separation? Stephen Mitchell reads another book excerpt. I've heard people say that they cling to their painful thoughts because they're afraid that without them, they wouldn't be activists for peace. If I felt completely peaceful, they say, why would I bother taking action at all? My answer is, because that's what love does. To think that we need sadness or outrage to motivate us to do what's right is insane as if the clearer and happier you get, the less kind you become. As if when someone finds freedom, she just sits around all day with drool running down her chin. (laughs) My experience is the opposite. Love is action. It's clear. It's kind. It's effortless. And it's irresistible. This weekend I was on a short trip and they lost my luggage at the very beginning of the trip. When she told me that, I yelled at the baggage clerk. I was really embarrassed and I walked out and I was shaking. I had to go to the car rental desk and I was very upset, but luckily I had your book. I love it. (laughs) I just, I, there was a long line. So I thought, well, I'll just see what Katie has to say. Mm -hmm. The next chapter, I believe the essence of it was, people don't care about you. And it helped me so much because by the time I got to the car rental agent, I didn't expect anything from him. I didn't expect any empathy, any kindness. I did expect keys to the car. Yes. And that's what I got. And actually, it turned out to be a lovely exchange. Why is it that we want other people to take care of us? Well, we haven't learned to take responsibility for ourselves. We learn to take responsibility for ourselves. We find out we're so capable of it, and we're already taken care of, as a matter of fact. We discover that also. But uh, we learn how to take responsibility for ourselves. It leaves so much time and energy and creativity to help others. I mean, if we love helping ourselves, why wouldn't we love helping someone else? If we don't understand that we love taking care of ourselves, how can we understand we love taking care of other people? And so what happens is we take care of other people with motives. And if they don't thank us or they are not grateful or grateful enough, then we become hurt and angry and and shut off again. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Suzanne Kreider, and today we're exploring a method for reducing the conflict within ourselves as we talk with Byron Katie, originator of what's known as The Work, and author with her husband, Stephen Mitchell, of A Thousand Names for Joy. With these core beliefs, do we program children with these beliefs, or are they inherent in human beings? Well, actually, um, we program and we don't. Let's say my mother said, I need more money. 
if I'm a wise child, I think, you know, I look around, I see all that we have, and, and I think, isn't it interesting my mother would believe that? Look at the abundance here. My goodness, isn't, isn't, isn't that an odd belief? But if I'm, if I'm a believer, she says, I uh, need more money. Oh, my goodness, you know, what am I going to do? I, I think, oh, my goodness, what are we going to do? We need more money. And I don't stop to, to investigate, you know. I uh, just assume she's right. I believe it. So my, all my problems are my own. Many core beliefs sound modern. Aboriginal people probably didn't sit around and think, I'm not getting enough done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or is it just the idea of language that causes us, us to suffer? Well, you know, words have meaning. Like someone could say, oh, this is a pretty far-out example, but someone uh, says, oh, we're going to uh, be bombed in 10 minutes. And, um, and everyone is so, so, so frightened. And, you know, my mind would immediately say, you know, is that true? Can I absolutely know that that's true? You know, I can't know. So I am in a fearless state, which allows me to help people who are in fear. And I don't know that the bomb won't hit in 10 minutes either. It's just that the fear is gone because I don't know. I'm open. But they tell people a bomb is going to hit in 10 minutes, and they immediately believe it. And the mind runs with the, the, the chaos that's going to happen. It could cost them their lives. It could kill their children, all of this. And it's not, it's not efficient. And it's not loving. And it's not caring. Fear is um, it's inefficient. So whereas I, you know, I don't know. They could be right. Now, what can I do from here? And as I'm helping people, um, just maybe holding their hand or picking them up as they run and stumble and fall. You know, I can see the clouds and the sky and the flowers and the trees, and my mind is free, not stuck. It is free to, to see clearly what needs to be done right here, right now. And then if the bomb hits, how would we know it? We may as well enjoy life in every moment. You know, it could be our last. And for me, it's always my first. Are people addicted to these negative beliefs? Mm -hmm. What is the juice? Mm -hmm. Why do we keep Mm -hmm. doing it? You know, we don't know another way. We just don't know another way. You know, it's just a trap and if we knew another way, we would take it. And I found another way, and I offer it to everyone. And my job is to make sure that as many people as possible know that the four questions exist, and I don't expect them to answer those questions. And my job is to make them available. After this break, we'll hear more from Byron Katie and Stephen Mitchell, co-authors of A Thousand Names for Joy, Living in Harmony with the Way Things Are. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution, online at peacetalksradio.com.
You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Paul Ingalls. Our program puts the spotlight on peacemaking efforts throughout history and throughout the world. We also survey strategies for nonviolent conflict resolution between nations, in the places where we live and work, and within ourselves. It's that search for inner peace that we're exploring today with author Byron Katie, whose method of personal inquiry pulled her up from the depths of depression in the mid-1980s. She's written several books, including Loving What Is and A Thousand Names for Joy. She calls her system The Work, which revolves around four questions that she invites anyone experiencing stressful thoughts to ask of themselves. At her 2007 public event in Santa Fe, New Mexico, she helped one woman in the audience through the work around the thought, he should make up his mind. So, sweetheart, he should make up his mind. Is yes. there anyone in this room that has never experienced that thought? <laughs> it, do, it doesn't matter what language or where we're from. There are no new stressful thoughts. <laughs> if you put us all together... There's one schizophrenic mind. So he should make up his mind. That's old. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm inviting everyone in your silence to consider, is that true? Consider the person in your life. Maybe someone you live with now, maybe it's someone you lived with 15 years ago or as a child, he, she, he should make up his mind. Can you absolutely know that that's true? No. And how do you react when you believe that thought? What happens? Well, I get frustrated and I feel like I'm in limbo and I'm basing how I live on someone else's decision. And then I'm opening up in the love, and then I'm closing down and basing. I'm stuck in the reactions. I'm just stuck. And then the people that around you or the people you meet, when you're believing that thought, Mm. they experience that coming from you. Mm. And look how you treat him and the, the people around you. What happens when you believe that thought? So this is meditation. You can sit in this question for a long time. And also this is where addictions kick in. Okay, the fourth question. Who would you be without that thought? And those of you new to the work, you know, no trick questions. The mind is not going to buy a lie. So imagine your life, just the way you've lived it. No positive affirmations. Just the way you've lived it, only without the thought, he should make up his mind. mm -hmm. Who would you be without that thought? Who would you be without your story? I'd be really free. I'd be happy. It wouldn't matter at all. It just matters what I think, you know, how I feel about me. Yes. So he, he should make up his mind. What's an opposite? He should not make up his mind. Okay, now give me an example of why that is as true or truer. Because there's confusion and there's thoughts and there's memories and there's the past and it all plays out its spiral. Yes, that's one. Can you find another example of why he should not make up his mind? Well, for me it's you live the moment. You just live the moment. Can you find another example of why people should not make up their mind? (laughs) It's none of my business. Mm -hmm. That's another one. (laughs) There are many reasons why people should not make up their mind. The one that comes to me is they would if they could. (laughs) (laughs) And there's another one. It's like, if he made up his mind now, the timing's off. (laughs) Notice a time in your life when you made a decision. Did you make that decision? Are you sure? Wasn't it just a happening? Should I, shouldn't I, should I, shouldn't I? Well, the decision's being made right there. It's not yet. 
And then when the decision hits you, it's like a gift. It's like, boom. It's a gift. And then you take credit for, I did it. I made the decision. Could you find another turnaround? He should make up his mind. I should make up my mind. Mm. That's really that's really where it's yeah. at. Yeah. Yeah, I'm the one who's back and forth. Yeah. It's very conditional. Yeah. Yes, and it allows us to walk in their shoes. And there's we can become very humble in that. As we notice mm-hmm. the times that it's not so easy for us, not so simple. We begin to relate to those people we love until they don't make up their minds. Thank you. That helped. There's a quote in your book, A Thousand Names for Joy. Our pain is in denying love. Mm. Why is love so Mm. painful to receive? Well, because our thoughts oppose it. He doesn't love me. He doesn't like me. I did it wrong. What's the matter with me? There's something the matter with me. These thoughts all oppose what is beautiful. They oppose our nature, which is love. And, and love for me is synonymous with real, with genuine, with, um, with reality. So if we, did not, if, if we did not hold or believe the thoughts that argued with love, it's over. But every thought that would oppose love feels like stress. That's how I came to understand our nature, that our nature is, is truly um, friendly, kind, helpful. And again, I invite people not to believe me, but to test it for themselves. Any thought that argues with this feels like stress. And stress looks like anger, frustration, um, confusion, chaos. Byron Katie's husband and co-author Stephen Mitchell reading an excerpt from the book A Thousand Names for Joy. Some people think that compassion means feeling another person's pain. That's nonsense. It's not possible to feel another person's pain. You imagine what you'd feel if you were in that person's shoes and you feel your own projection. Who would you be without your story? Pain-free, happy, and totally available if someone needs you. A listener, a teacher in the house, a Buddha in the house, the one who lives it. As long as you think there's a you and a me, let's get the body straight. What I love about separate bodies is that when you hurt, I don't. It's not my turn. (laughs) And when I hurt, you don't. Can you be there for me without putting your own suffering between us? Your suffering can't show me the way. Suffering can only teach suffering. The Buddhists say that it's important to recognize the suffering in the world, and that's true, of course. But if you look more deeply, even that is a story. It's a story to say that there is any suffering in the world. Suffering is imagined because we haven't adequately questioned our thoughts. I am able to be present with people in extreme states of torment without seeing their suffering as real. I'm in the position of being totally available to help them see what I see, if that's what they want. They're the only ones who can change, but I can be present with kind words and the power of inquiry. It's amazing how many people believe that suffering is a proof of love. If I don't suffer when you suffer, they think, it means that I don't love you. How can that possibly be true? Love is serene. It's fearless. If you're busy projecting what someone else's pain must feel like, how can you be fully present with her? How can you hold her hand and love her with all your heart as she moves through her experience of pain. Why would she want you to be in pain, too? Wouldn't she rather have you present and available? You can't be present for people if you believe that you're feeling their pain. 
If a car runs over someone and you project what that must feel like, you're paralyzed. But sometimes in a crisis like that, the mind loses its reference. It can't project anymore. You don't think. You just act. You run over and pick up the car before you have time to think, this isn't possible. It happens in a split second. Who would you be without your story? The car is up in the air. I love stress because for me, it shows me that I'm believing something that is not true for me, something that I need to question, even if it is true, to see what am I missing here? And then the mind is free to be its creative self again. The stress is just a warning signal. Wake up, pay attention. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's it. Stress is not an enemy. Feelings are not an enemy. And that third question, how do I react when I believe the thought? When a person sits in that question, feelings happen and tears happen and emotions happen that maybe they haven't felt since they were a child and they've been denying themselves for years. For our listeners who can identify a stressful thought, what would you recommend? To go to, well, uh, A Thousand Names for Joy, the four questions and turnaround are right there. Also, Loving What Is is the text for the work. And people in a hurry can go to thework.com. And, and it's all there at no charge. What resources are available on your website? I have a hotline that people can um, get into and call selfless people. It's absolutely, there's no charge. They don't care about your name, your state, your town. It's free. You uh, get on, give them your stressful thought, and they'll walk you through it because they understand how painful it is to believe it and how simple it is to step out of, of what some people experience as really hell sometimes when they're up against the wall. And for others, it's just fun and delightful and fabulous. Can people do the work on themselves? Yes, how would that work? Well, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good enough. You know, and then I would just walk myself through the questions. Or I'm hopeless, and I'd walk myself through the questions. Or um, I, um, I'm unlovable, and I would walk myself through the four questions and find the opposites, come out of denial, and own them, and get real with my beautiful self until I didn't think I was beautiful, believe I was beautiful until I am that. It's like someone could say, Katie, you are not beautiful. And what do you think about that? And I might say, you know, I remember when I used to see me that way also. So I understand it. A man sticks a pistol into my stomach, pulls the hammer back and says, I'm going to kill you. I am shocked that he is taking his thoughts so seriously. Stephen Mitchell reads another book excerpt, Byron Katie's story about an encounter with a gunman threatening to kill her. To someone identified as an I, the thought of killing causes guilt that leads to a life of suffering. So I ask him, as kindly as I can, not to do it. I don't tell him that it's his suffering I'm thinking of. He says that he has to do it, and I understand. I remember believing that I had to do things in my old life. I thank him for doing the best he can, and I notice that I'm fascinated. Is this how she dies? Is this how the story ends? And as joy continues to fill me, I find it miraculous that the story is still going on. You can never know the ending, even as it ends. I am very moved at the sight of sky, clouds, and moonlit trees. I love that I don't miss one moment, one breath, of this amazing life. I wait and wait. And in the end, he doesn't pull the trigger. He doesn't do that to himself. You know, he says he's going to kill me, and I can't know that that's true, so I project that he can't know that it's true. And we wait. An audience member asks, well, what happened? Did he just walk away? Well, basically, yes. Didn't you call the police, the woman asks? What did you do? Well, actually, he didn't do anything. <laughs> so, so did I answer your question? No, says the woman. I can't understand not feeling fear. Fear is created. 
as we believe our thoughts. So if he says, I'm going to kill you and the gun's in my stomach, I think, you know, oh my goodness, I'm going to die. Well, I can't know that that's true. Um, my children are going to suffer. Well, I'm not dead yet. I'm standing there with suffering children and nothing's changed. So are you telling me that your, your mind reacted before the adrenaline? There was no... There was no adrenaline. I have to believe my thoughts before I can, before the effect, adrenaline can exist. Mind is original cause. Feelings are an effect of mind. And for me, feelings, whatever they are, are friends. And if you, you're experiencing, um, feelings that, that you would interpret as love, um, balance, then, you know, that's a wonderful thing. And if you're experiencing stress, fear, then that's a wonderful thing because you can identify eventually, if you take it on as a practice, you can identify the, the thoughts that are creating that fear. And for me, uh, I invite people to put those thoughts on paper. That way they've landed. Mind has come into the material world and into form, like just writing. And then you can question what you believe with these four questions and opposites that I call um, the work. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm Suzanne Kreider, and today we're exploring a method for reducing the conflict within ourselves as we talk with Byron Katie, originator of what's known as The Work, and author with her husband, Stephen Mitchell, of A Thousand Names for Joy. Where do thoughts come from? You really want the answer? You know, my experience of the answer? Yeah. They don't. <laughs> they don't come from no. anywhere? It's, it's By the time they come, they're gone. And I invite people not to believe me, but to test it for themselves. By the time they're, they come, they're gone, and there's only another, there's only another thought there that tells us we had a thought in the first place, and now that thought is gone. So the only way that we know mind exists is another thought that tells us it does. And now that thought is gone also. So what I tell people that haven't realized this, haven't experienced this for themselves yet, is that thoughts are happening. They're a gift. That thoughts come, they're like air, you know, like breath. The breath, we do nothing for it. It comes in and out. It's as though we're... We're being breathed, just being breathed, and thoughts are the same way. They're not enemies. They appear. It appears. And what I love about thoughts is, you know, they come to pass. That's why they come. And then eventually, as mind, as thoughts understand themselves, they look forward to life together because they're not at war with each other. And then some of the things I speak of also become so clear in that. And the mind is at home and at rest. It's free to be its creative, infinite self. Even though it knows it doesn't exist, it delights in itself. I mean, it's, it's like if you were God, and you were beauty, and you were love, and you were everything magnificent, you were everything, wouldn't you want to see yourself? So I see all of life as the mirror of of my own self, your own self, all of it, just beautiful. It's it's just um, it's just a mirror. Suzanne Kreider talking with Byron Katie, who, with her husband Stephen Mitchell, co-authored the book A Thousand Names for Joy: Living in Harmony with the Way Things Are. If you have a happy life, isn't that wonderful? It, that just tells me you have, you love everything you think. You know, you you you. If you love everything you think, they put you in a in a cell and you thank them. Because <laughs> you're in there with some good company. 
And if you don't love what you think and they put you in the cell, that's the worst thing they could do because you're, you're locked up with you, with this. And if it's not good company, I invite you to, um, to take a look. <laughs> Stephen Mitchell reads another book excerpt. The world is an optical illusion. It's just you, crazed and miserable, or you, delighted and at peace. In the end, desire is equal to free from desire. Desire is a gift. It's about noticing. Everything happens for you, not to you. I have questioned my thoughts, and I've seen that it's crazy to argue with what is. I don't ever want anything to happen except what's happening. For example, my 90-year-old mother is dying of pancreatic cancer. I'm taking care of her, cooking and cleaning for her, sleeping beside her, living in her apartment 23 hours a day. My husband takes me out for a walk every morning. It has been a month now. It's as if her breath is the pulse of my life. I bathe her, I wash her in the most personal places, I medicate her, and I feel such a sense of gratitude. That's me over there, dying of cancer, spending my last few days sleeping and watching TV and talking, medicated with the most marvelous pain-killing drugs. I am amazed at the beauty and intricacies of her body, my body. And the last day of her life, as I sit by her bedside, a shift takes place in her breathing, and I know it's only a matter of minutes now. And then another shift takes place, and I know. Our eyes lock, and a few moments later, she's gone. I look more deeply into the eyes that the mind has vacated, the mindless eyes, the eyes of the no-mind. I wait for a change to take place. I wait for the eyes to show me death, and nothing changes. She's as present as she ever was. I love my story about her. How else could she ever exist? No one knows what's good and what's bad. No one knows what death is. Maybe it's not a something. Maybe it's not even a nothing. It's the pure unknown, and I love that. We imagine that death is a state of being or a state of nothingness, and we frighten ourselves with our own concepts. I'm a lover of what is. I love sickness and health, coming and going, life and death. I see life and death as equal. Reality is good, so death must be good, whatever it is, if it's anything at all. Thank you all for coming. You can hear this program again, read a partial transcript, and find links to Byron Katie's website by visiting our website, peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear all the programs in our series, order CDs of them, sign up for a monthly newsletter, or our podcast. That's also where you can do your part by making a tax-deductible contribution to ensure that we can continue to bring talk of peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution to the radio and to the web, all at peacetalksradio.com. In addition to support from listeners like you, we also have support from the Oppenheimer Brothers Foundation, the McCune Charitable Foundation of New Mexico, the Peace Tales CD Project, and KUNM. Music by Ali Adelman. We also had production assistance from Douglas Grant. Peace Talks Radio is a production of the nonprofit media organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thank you for listening. Thank you.